Hello and welcome to episode 54 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people that create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Uh, well, spring is finally here in this part of the world, and uh, it's April 2014, and there is a lot going on. Uh, for starters, by the time that you hear this, the very first ever Closure Bridge workshop will have completed. Um, uh, Closure Bridge isn't put on by Cognitech, but lots of Cognitechs have been involved in helping out with it, and we're super excited that it's off the ground. So if you made it to the first one, congratulations. That's really great. Um, and if you didn't, uh, well, there are actually already more scheduled. There's one scheduled for San Francisco. I'm pretty sure there's one in the works for Minneapolis. I think there's another one uh, scheduled to run in North Carolina, and there's more that will be announced, um, including some outside the United States, so that's very exciting. Uh, you'll want to keep your eye on closurebridge.org for all the details. Uh, Cognitechs are going to be all over the place, at least in the U.S., in April of 2014. Uh, Stu Halloway, in particular, will be hitting the road. He's going to be giving several talks, including Closure in 10 Big Ideas, Narcissistic Design, Simulation Testing with Simulant, and Generative Testing, which are all pretty interesting topics, in my opinion. Um, he'll be delivering those at the New York Software Symposium in New York City on April 4th and 5th, at the Gateway Software Symposium in St. Louis, Missouri on the 11th and 12th, and at the Northern Virginia Software Symposium, which is held the 25th to the 27th in Reston, Virginia. Um, so hopefully one of those is near you, and you can go out and see Stu talk. I think he's always pretty entertaining to watch and um, informative, too. So uh, If you do get out to see Stu in St. Louis, well, lucky you. You can double up on meeting at Cognitech if you also attend the St. Louis Closure Meetup, which is being held the 15th, as our very own Alex Miller is the organizer, and he'll be there. Now, if you're in Boulder, Colorado on the 19th, be sure to catch Ryan Neufeld's talk, Building Web Applications in Closure, at LambdaConf. Uh, Ryan will also be delivering a free online version of the same subject for O'Reilly on the 24th. Uh, you can find details about all the things I'm talking about, certainly about Ryan's um, talk on our blog, which is still at the old URL, uh, thinkrelevance.com slash blog. We're working on it. <laughs> on the 24th in Durham, North Carolina, you can catch Yoko Harada and maybe one or two other Cognitechs at the Triangle Closure Users Group at uh, Cognitech World Headquarters. Um, I, myself, will be speaking in Richmond, Virginia on the 29th at the RVA Data Hackers User Group. Um, I will be talking about Datomic. If you're anywhere nearby, please come on over. I would love to see you there. It would be fun to talk to you and meet up and talk Datomic and whatever else comes up. Uh, I do want to mention also that the call for proposals for Lambda Jam, which is a conference put on by Cognitech Alex Miller, who also organizes Strange Loop. Um, is involved in our conferences like Closure West, so he's, you know, he's darn good at putting on conferences, so I'm sure Lambda Jam will be excellent. Uh, the call for proposals there ends on April 14th. Again, this is all 2014, so you should head over to lambdajam.com and submit your talk. I'm sure it's going to be a good conference. Uh, last but not least, I want to make sure to remind you about the training that we'll be offering in Durham on April 29th and 30th. There are two classes, one on Datomic and one on ClojureScript. They're both taught by Stuart Sierra. Uh, they're great classes about what I think are really interesting technologies. We still have a few spots left, and in case you're on the fence <laughs> and are swayed by this sort of thing, there's a very good chance that I'll be swinging by to say hello, um, as I will be in Durham during that time. So uh, really hope to see you there. Um, should be fun. All right, you, again, you can find details about all of these fine events on our blog at thinkrelevance.com and on our new, on our new website, uh, cognitech.com slash events. So um, check it out there. All right, I think that'll do it. Now, episode 54 of the Cognicast.
crossed. Yes. All right. Welcome, everybody, to the Cognicast. Today is February 14th, 2014, and we are super pleased to have on the show today a guest who I feel like we ought to have had um, on a long time ago and several times since, uh, given the number of interesting things he has done, namely uh, David Nolan. Welcome to the show, David. Hi. I am super glad that you could make it. Um, now, before um, we go any farther, I'm going to go ahead and ask you what music we were playing on the way in here. Um, that was the Ebony Rhythm Band, um, and then this is a song called Drugs Ain't Cool. Um, sort of an obscure progressive rock band. Um, anyway, it's, it's just a cool tune. Yeah, I, it, uh, I actually uh, usually ask the guests just on the show, but you were kind enough to send me your selections beforehand, and I... I got a chance to listen to it, so for once, when um, someone mentions a band that I haven't encountered before, I actually, in this case, I've had a little exposure. It's kind of a, a neat groove to it. Um, yeah, so that's a fun song. Is it someone you encountered just like randomly, you know, music discovery, or is there a band you have some kind of relationship with? Or uh, no, it was really, it was really like I was somewhere and I heard it, and I was like, this is just a great song, and I asked whoever whoever played it what it what it was, and then I looked them up. Cool. Always yeah. fun. Always fun discoveries when you hear a new band that you're like, I never heard of them before, and they're awesome. Yeah. Um, well, so the the <laughs> turning to matters of software, I, I don't even know where to start. Honestly, I mean, David, you've done so many things that are an interesting part of the landscape. Um, you know, everything from your involvement in Closure Script to uh, CoreLogic to um, lately. Um, I think maybe you know, let's stick with the kind of the, the new hotness, although those, all those things are interesting and we may touch on all of them. I'd love to talk to you for a while today about OM, or maybe you pronounce it OM. How do you pronounce it? I've been saying it OM, but I, you know, I think it's okay. Okay. However, however people want to say it, it's okay. It's the, the problem with a uh, mostly textual medium like the internet okay. where, right? Okay, great. Well, so so maybe I'll just throw it to you and you can explain to people what OM is and, and uh, how you came to develop it and, and what makes it interesting and all that good stuff. Right. So uh, my friend Brandon Bloom, who has been involved in the uh, closure community like the past year and a half or so, six months ago, he was like, when React came out or you know pretty close to when it came out, he was like, David, you got to check this thing out. It's amazing. And you know, I went to the website and I was like, it was very confusing. It looked very object-oriented, and I, I literally didn't look at it again. But then uh, uh, Pete Hunt, who's one of the main devs on React, gave a really fantastic uh, presentation on the architecture. Um, and it wasn't like this high-level, like, this is the API. It was like, how does it work under the hood um, at um, JSConfEU um, la last year? And uh, I was blown away. I was like, this sounds like the right way to design something. And then I started following them on Twitter, and one of the de developers were like, oh, yeah, at Facebook, we actually used React, and you know, there was a part of our app that was slow, and we replaced it with a persistent data structure, and we got a 10x performance boost. And I said, well, was that because you guys could do you know, basically reference equality checks? And he was like, yeah, that's exactly right. And then I was like, this sounds kind of perfect for ClojureScript. I mean, <clears throat> as much as I love ClojureScript, I think the one issue with ClojureScript was that, that sort of the sort of mar on its sort of polish is that as awesome as it is, we still have to deal with a mutable DOM. And so you, I would look at a lot of ClojureScript code and was like, well, that's really a problem we don't have a solution for yet. And uh, so I got very excited about React because I, I saw that we could sort of, you know, really take advantage of uh, immutability in React. 
uh, and sort of like leverage the benefits of both systems. Yeah, that right, right. That 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 is a very interesting uh, thing. I mean, the DOM isn't something that one usually thinks of as um, being anything that could possibly take advantage of immutability. Um, now, I myself am not much of a front end guy. I mean, I've done some work with ClojureScript, and I'm sort of vaguely aware of that space. But I, I tend to be more in the back end. I wonder if you could um, talk a bit about React because that's the part. Like, I've looked a little bit at Ohm, but a lot of it is oh, React's this great thing. What is it just is the thing that makes react great just that it it gives you that capability or what was it about it that kind of appealed to you as you dove into it so there are there are there are a couple things that are appealing about react so the really the most appealing thing about react is the underlying algorithm and so basically what they do is you know to basically touching the dom is slow and this this is, i mean people have known this for a long time i mean i did some benchmarks so i was like using jquery to access something in the dom and it's like hundreds of times slower than updating a, a persistent data structure. And even things like doing direct document, uh, document get element by ID to access something in the DOM is still slower than like updating a transient, right? Um, so just touching the DOM is a, a performance bottleneck. And so what the React guys decided was that it probably is going to be better and faster for us to have a virtual representation of the DOM. And instead of um, actually touching the DOM like in various parts in your code, and that because that's really problematic because that creates bad interactions between the JavaScript and, and the layout engine. Why don't we just use the virtual DOM and do all the operations on the virtual DOM, and then by doing this diffing process where we look at this was the state of the virtual DOM at time zero, and this is the state of the DOM at time you know t one. What actually changed, and we'll compile a list of the minimal set of of modifications we need to make to the DOM. And we'll do it all at once. Um, and that's, this just turned out to have huge performance benefits um, by doing it this way. But there's also like a fairly large conceptual benefit in that what happens to your code is that your code ends up looking uh, pretty declarative. Um, and you don't need too many other concepts. Um, where you look at like a lot of these other solutions in the JavaScript space are like, bindings or you have to like augment your models and say this is observable and you have all these extra concepts whereas in the react model you're truly taking um in, in definitely in the javascript world you're taking javascript and you're converting into virtual dom and so it look, ends up look, looking extremely declarative i mean it almost reads as if you're rebuilding the entire dom every time again which is nice because a lot of imperative stuff disappears when you when you're sort of like going from value to value and I, that, that, that to me was extremely appealing, um, that, it, that, that the, the way that it appeared was, you know, the way that you write the code is very declarative. And at the same time, you get this sort of big performance benefit. Yeah, that almost reminds me of um, when compilers were first invented. There, you know, there was this, I believe the, one of the motivations was that you had this, um, this spinning drum, right, that was the disk drive. And the, the, the programmers used to optimize their code by rearranging it so that, the amount of time it took to execute an instruction, you would offset the next instruction so that the point where that instruction was on the drum would be under the head at the point where you were doing the next read. Right. Right, like you have this really slow thing, and it's like, well, okay, so why don't we let the computer figure out how to reorganize the program to take advantage? I mean, the analogy's not perfect, but it, it did come to mind as you were talking. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's that's really, I mean, that's actually kind of a great analogy because... I mean, in some sense, you have to face the reality of what's underneath, right? But it's that's 
really a horrible interface and it's so easy for programmers to get it wrong. I, I mean, even, I mean, I've been doing JavaScript forever and I often make um, mistakes when I'm using, when I'm doing this sort of like direct DOM manipulation and it's sort of nice to offload that work onto React. And the other huge value proposition here is that Instagram is using React and Facebook is using React and other companies are starting to pick it up. So it's, it has this advantage of being like a lot of people, like these are products that millions of people are seeing. So it, it will end up being one of the you know, most battle-tested um, frameworks out there. And the other thing that's really cool is that they have an incentive to make it faster. And what's great is about that is that uh, regardless of what layer you decide to use over React or whether you use React itself, you know, there's this nice benefit that your code just gets faster and you don't have to do anything. And I think that's kind of like a huge, huge value proposition. Hmm. Okay, so then you saw that and said, needs more closure script. So, so um, what I did was, was I, I looked at it and I said, oh, okay, the, um, the fundamentals here are great, but of course React has to cater to the JavaScript community. And so a lot of what I wanted to do was I wanted to put um, uh, a layer over React that was more friendly for ClojureScript data structures. I mean, that, that's really the most significant change that I made. I was also of the opinion, because ClojureScript data structures are so optimal for React, that, um, that really people shouldn't be writing custom logic about how their content, um, whether their content should be re-rendered or not. So React has this critical function called should component update, uh, which allows you to customize when um, subtrees actually get re-rendered. And I think it's kind of like one of these details where it's, sure, it's easy to do, but in the case of OMA, it's like, you're never going to be able to come up with um, a faster thing than what OMA is going to provide, right? OMA does reference equality checks. There's no faster test. Um, so I, I kind of wanted OMA to just really hide uh, some of these hooks because, you know, I just wanted OMA to be faster by default. And in fact, it's turned out to be true. You know, out of the box, if you do the same thing in OMA and you do it in React, uh, OMA is twice as fast, right? For basic stuff. That's pretty ridiculous. They have a thing on a thing be faster than the thing. Yeah, but, but that's also, so just to clarify, so the reason, the reason it's faster is that, again, we know to, that we don't have to update a subtree. In React, JavaScript developers use, they hand React components JavaScript arrays and objects. And because they do that, uh, it's impossible for React to actually know if something changed or not, right? Because it was given mutable data structures. So they, it's actually the case that React um, the default implementation of should component update is always true. So, and this is actually, it sounds bad, but it's actually kind of amazing because what that would have forced them to do is that um, React is really, 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 really fast, even if it actually has to um, walk everything. So they, they do have like a couple other hooks to make that scale that we don't need. But again, it's, uh, React is quite fast, even if it has to do a lot of, a lot of walking. Hmm. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, I mean, <laughs> like there's, there's nothing like knowing something isn't going to change to make it easy to tell whether it's changed. <laughs> right, right. So are you using um in your work now? You're at the New York Times. Yes, uh, I'm not. I mean, I'm not using it, using it for anything yet. Um, definitely, people here are really excited about React. I mean, I think my React post uh, made some big waves, regardless of what technology people were using. So we started using it here, and it's and it's been great because you know we have something, and it's like. Oh, it takes uh, 80 milliseconds to render, which is, you know, you're talking like, that's like 
what, 13, 14 frames a second. You know, somebody dropped in React. And, and React is kind of nice because you can, like, sort of surgically add it. You don't have to use React in your whole, you know, for your whole system. You can be like, there's one particular part of our system where the rendering is slow. And they started using React and, like, now rendering takes 10, 10 milliseconds. So it's, you know, you went from 12, 14 frames a second to 60 frames a second. Uh, and that's really noticeable in UIs. But Ohm is still like, you know, it's 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 getting there. People are people. Other people are using it in production, which I think is both cool and crazy. Uh, but it's not quite it's not. There's a there's been a couple things that I feel like have been missing that I've landed like yesterday, which I think uh, will round out the feature set that I want. And then I, hopefully people sort of confirm that it solves most of their problems. And then the thing that I'm really excited about is that people start making reusable components. And that's something which I think really, even in the JavaScript landscape, even with these UI widget libraries, it's sort of like a broken promise. This notion that you could actually take something and drop it in and you have the tools to make it work. Uh, I think uh, Ohm is probably better suited to actually provide a good story there uh, as far as reusable components go. Oh, at the same time, and the other thing that I think is really important is not just reusable components, so the big idea behind uh, Ohm is that Ohm has time management. And so the idea is that not only do we have a, a universe of reusable components, but they all work with time management. So if you need to roll back your application state, it doesn't matter what widgets you use. Uh, Ohm can roll back the application state. For example, if you make a server request and something goes wrong, literally rolling back the entire application is one instruction. And then you can do stuff like, oh, let's serialize that to local storage so that when the server gets fixed, we can try that again or something. And that, I think, is really cool. And th I haven't seen much of unless people write lots of custom code. And in Ohm, it's like, it's like kind of a, like an afterthought. That is super cool. And I, I have to assume that's, that's falling out of the same thing, which is to say the immutable persistent uh, data structures that you just say, oh, well, this is what it looked like before, and we're just going to go back to that. Exactly. Yeah. It's funny how often that works out. <laughs> So you mentioned uh, reusable components, which, of course, is a big deal. That's a, sort of a UI holy grail that different technologies have chased to a greater or lesser extent for decades. What is it, so what does it look like to write? I mean, I've looked briefly at the Ohm um, stuff, but give me a sense, give our listeners a sense maybe of what it looks like to write an Ohm component. Like, what, what do I have to have or do or make? So um, the API for Ohm is quite small, and I'd like to keep it that way. I mean, basically, you have um, what are called the lifecycle hooks. So React has these functions called um, lifecycle methods, and, and they're really important. They're like, oh, you're, this component is about to, um, should this component update? And this component is about to be rendered into the DOM, and, or the component is rendered in the DOM, and stuff like that. These are very important hooks because, for example, when you're about to mount into the DOM, you want to like set up a, an animation sort of interval, right? And then when the, it gets removed from the DOM, you want to get rid of that animation interval. And so uh, the lifecycle methods are extremely uh, important for sort of controlling this lifespan of your components. So that, we replicate that basically verbatim. If there's nothing really different between um, Ohm and React as far as that goes. The, the, one, the main difference is that instead of getting mutable uh, JavaScript objects, and you get immutable values instead. So otherwise, the lifecycle methods are exactly the same. So beyond the lifecycle methods, you have basically 12 functions, which I think are the ones that you need um, to do, you know, to build an application. But basically, you, you know, you, you make a component, 
you implement the lifecycle methods. Um, you use the 12 functions that um, sort of allow you to interact with the system. And that's really about it. I mean, in, in many ways, doing an OM component is conceptually like doing a React component. Uh, in fact, if you read through the React literature, um, it really maps pretty cleanly to, to OM. Uh, again, with the exception that everything that might be mutable in React is immutable in OM. But basically, every component takes two things. In React, it's called props. And um, in OM, we just, you know, it's just the data that your component receives. And the other thing that most components receives is called the owner. So, and the owner is really just um, the backing React component. Of course, every OM component is backed by a React component that I wrote that sort of sort of manages all the you know these details about should this thing re-render without you having to write custom logic. And the third argument that every OM component can take is basically this thing called ops, which are just options. And that's just a map of whatever your application needs um, to work. Um, and that's 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 really about it. What I like about OM code when I when I you know when I look at examples that people are writing is that you know it's it's sort of very structured. It's a highly structured thing. Um, and so it's pretty easy to read other people's own code because everybody sort of follows these patterns. And that, I think, is also uh, extremely valuable, especially when you're talking about putting together a relatively complex application. And at the same time, what you get in OM that you don't get from React is that uh, because everybody's components are taking these sort of windows into a immutable state, you know, that's a lot of, re that's a lot of additional reasoning power that I think doesn't really exist. Uh, in plain React or in other sort of component systems. Yeah, that's that's really super cool. <laughs> I sometimes think that maybe I should rename the show the Immuticast for the number of times that we say immutability enabled the following thing, but then I could never publish new episodes. No, I'm kidding. Right. Um, Actually, one other so one cool thing that is kind of neat that I that um, I think own people understand, but maybe other people aren't familiar with. But basically, uh, if a component wants to change its sort of state. Uh, so in Ohm, there's this sort of like cursor abstraction, right? And this is basically what, what it allows us to do is the application state is basically an, one atom that holds the entire structure of the application. And you really don't want components to take this global state. That's um, actually kind of like not nice. And so what, what I came up with was that we basically wrap ClojureScript persistent data structures in, a, in what's called a cursor, and it exposes a collection API. And what happens when you access what appears to be a collection, it's actually giving you a new cursor, which is, wraps the data structure you tried to access, um, and it maintains path information. And so why this is cool is that that means components can receive data, and it may appear to be a vector, it may appear to be a map, but it's actually um, a window into uh, the application state. So when you tell the component, I, I need to update this piece of state, the component doesn't actually know where it lives. And this is extremely important for modularity, right? At the same time, this also gives us the rollback capability, right? It's specifically because everything is in one atom that we can roll back. Uh, and that was like a big, uh, that was really like the, probably the problem that I wanted to solve in OM that React didn't really give any guidance about, right? How do we have modular components that only know about their own information yet have the ability to snapshot the entire application. Hopefully, does that make sense? It does make sense. I'm, I'm, like my, I'm, I'm mulling it over because it seems, it seems really interesting. So let me see. So 
I'm just trying to understand. You you have a component, and it makes sense what you say that you should have a window onto the application state that's essentially kind of like that part without the surrounding context. You, you obviously don't want to couple a component to the to the global state of the application because the blah, right? Exactly. Um, so then what? So then the the component is given the opportunity to to somehow return a new uh, value for that section, and then behind the scenes, you're managing m merging that together, or what's the so, what's the effect so, there? So it's not so because the way React works, it's very difficult without me making OM internally a lot more complicated to actually allow components re to return a value for the thing that they want to change. So that's kind of how Web Fui worked, and if we could have done that, I would have done that. But again, React made that a, a little bit difficult. Um, so in OM, we have this thing called transact. And basically what you do is, you know, the, the component basically has some window into the application state and you give it a function, transact takes a function, which will appear to only transition that little piece of state. But actually, because the component got something that knows the path to that part of the global application state, it actually transitions the entire application state, right? Yep, that makes total sense now. Yeah, I can totally see that. I mean, yeah, I'm an old XML guy. I could imagine doing something very similar with like a, a, an XPath selector. Exactly. And and again, the, but the nice thing here is that the path part is hidden from the user. And, mm -hmm. the, and this is like, this is like, you could imagine doing this with zippers, right? Mm -hmm. But the thing is that zippers have like, I consider like zippers are really cool. But they have a really unnatural API when it comes to data structures, right? I mean, when I'm dealing with closure script maps and vectors, I want to use get. I want to use end. Um, I want to be able to call seek, right? And I want that to be the API. And so the thing that I did was that I allow all these things to happen. But under the hood, we internally maintain what's the path to this piece of data. Right. Okay. All right. I, I think I'm following you. That's the type of thing where I imagine after five minutes working with it, it'd make, it would make 100% sense, but I think I'm 80% of the way there. Yeah. I mean, it's good. It's, it's, it's one of the more, it's, it's the thing that I think people get hung up on a little bit. And once like it hits them, they get, it's, people get really excited because it, um, again, it maintains, it's what maintains modularity yet. It allows us to, again, make snapshots and it just works. Hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, if you have a function that just operates on that window and the rest is hidden, then obviously you can totally pretend that it's local state, which is what you want. Exactly. But that's that's the big thing. You can pretend it's local state, mm -hmm. right? And that's 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 why it, it works. <laughs> the software equivalent of putting your fingers in your ears and saying, nah, 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 except it's actually helpful. Yes. <laughs> cool. No, that's awesome, David. Um, I guess the one part I don't understand is where you say you you wrap up vectors and maps i don't i don't quite follow that so oh, wait wait sorry sorry so this is going to be entertaining to listen to as i fumble my way through i should probably just let you explain it but it's because you want to uh, you want to hand someone a function that applies to that piece of data but you as the author of ohm needs to be able to observe the effect of that function on that data is that correct exactly okay, i need got to know, it. i need to know um I need to know where the location of that data is, right? It, it serves two purposes. It hides the location of the data from the user, but allows the system to know where that data resides so that it can transition the application state. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. That's super cool. 
Yeah, and so the the, the neatest thing though is um this is a fairly this is like in the past couple of days um, that I recently added, and this is sort of a page out of a little bit out of Datomic. Uh, Datomic has this really amazing thing called the transaction queue, which basically allows you to get a stream of all you know all all operations on the database. Uh, and so I added a similar facility to OWN. So there's a hook now where basically it doesn't matter what components, how they transition the application state, you can basically get a stream of every transition and you will get the path that changed. You'll get the old and new value at that path and you'll get the old and new state. And the reason this is amazing is because this allows you to set up things like I want to make a component that manages synchronization. So one thing that I really hate, and this is, this, is, this is going back to the modularity thing with a lot of JavaScript code and even JavaScript frameworks, is that people bake their synchronization logic directly into um, or too close to the rest of their logic. So say I'm rendering like a to-do list, right? And I've written this beautiful thing and it handles all the client-side state. And then I'm like, oh, I have to add synchronization logic. And then you're like, oh, I'm gonna, am I gonna put in the controller? Am I gonna put in the model? Maybe I'm, you know, it's like you, you have, you have to make all these decisions. And, and really, I just, in Ohm, I decided that's, it's just the wrong way. I should be able to write all my client-side logic, and then I should be able to overlay synchronization logic without touching any of the other thing, any other bits of code that I wrote. And so I started this um, component called Ohm Sync, which basically is like, it, it's still a bit of a prototype, but it demonstrates that. You can take existing reusable widgets and you can wrap them in Ohm Sync, not change those widgets, and Ohm Sync can handle talking to the server and synchronizing changes um, to the app state. And this is done via this transaction queue. Mm. It also lets you do things like the Ohm Sync can basically say, oh, I got a 500 on this particular request, and you can put logic there because you have, you're getting the transaction queue information, you, and that gives you the old application state you can actually right there say, this failed, and whatever we're showing is inconsistent. Roll back to the previous application state. And it doesn't matter how complicated your UI is. It'll just work. Right, and presumably you could do something else like, um, you know, you've got your new and your old state, and you could provide a new new state that would be some function of those two states that would reflect the, the, whatever you were receiving um, from, the, from the other machine. Exactly. So it's, it's, it's pretty cool. So a lot, a lot of these things that you end up writing a significant amount of code for um, to handle these, these sort of error and edge cases um, where you have to like, oh, we have to, we have to maintain the inverse. And most people don't even do that. They just like hack in some specific thing that's like, this is how we're going to revert this. And this really lets you think at a much higher level. Like, what do we do when something goes wrong? Mm-hmm. Interesting. And I think you released that like yesterday. <laughs> yeah, that's cool, man, David. Where do you come up with these ideas? So, yeah. go ahead. No, no. I mean, it's all it's all Clojure script. You know, it's like it, Clojure script is a really big enabler. A lot of these things, I think, were floating around in my head for a long time. And 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 it really, it's truly the case that React sort of like was like, wow, all these ideas that I was like, you know, thought a year ago that would be really cool. I mean, now it's pretty easy to do. Well, you mentioned Closure Script, and actually, um, we, we can come back to Om in a while. But um, I keep swapping back and forth between Om and Om. Anyway, um, we can come back to Om in a while. But you, you've been pretty heavily involved in the development of Closure Script since um, for quite a while now. Um, I wonder if you could talk a bit about, you know, how you came to be aware of it and what your experience with it has been and and your involvement in the process, because you are pretty 
pretty heavily involved in in moving ClojureScript forward, I believe. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I was there when Rich announced it at um, uh, the NYC Closure Meetup, and I was pretty excited about it. I mean, I know a lot of people were sort of skeptical, and I think, um, and you know, in many ways, Rich was like, I think this could be cool. And Rich was busy with other things. He was like, look, you guys work on this. This could be awesome. Um, and at the time, I think where people were skeptical because I, I mean, I think the closure community is primarily to a lot, to a large degree, I think like this fact, actually this is true for most functional programming communities, sort of server, server side oriented and functional programming has a lot of value there. Um, and I think it's not obvious how much value functional programming has in the front end. Um, and it's because I think it's to a large degree, a research problem or was, <laughs> and, uh, so, so when I saw ClojureScript, I was like, there's a lot of potential here. I mean, it wasn't going to happen overnight, but, you know, you know, I got involved. I, I, I did some patches. And then, um, you know, we've had some amazing contributors, like mind-blowingly amazing. Mikkel Markchik, I think is his name. Mm -hmm. uh, he's, he's, he's basically the person that single-handedly ported all of the persistent data structures to ClojureScript. I think Laszlo Tarak or something, he did the persistent vector. And then, and then we sort of verified that on V8 that the performance was pretty incredible. And then um, we went and ported the rest of them. And then it's been amazing to see in two years' time uh, to see JavaScript Core and uh, SpiderMonkey, which is the Firefox engine. JavaScript Core is the Safari engine. To see the JavaScript world basically delivering um, the performance that's needed for sort of Rich's original persistent data structure designs. So, you know, like in ClojureScript, when ClojureScript was released, it was all copy on write, which was fine. I mean, it was like, but... Uh, what ClojureScript provides today, it's it's pretty. I I think it's pretty amazing. I'm blown away. Uh, you know? Yeah, I mean, I <laughs> you know, so like I say, I'm not. I don't do as much ClojureScript. I certainly do more Closure on the JVM. But you know, when I talk to people and I talk about Closure, um, meaning both languages, you know, they say, oh well, you know, what do you like about it? I'm like, well, you know, it's funny. I kind of came to it because I'm 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 a fan of Lisps, or at least I saw their potential before I started doing it, and I thought, oh, concurrency, that's great. And then you kind of get there, and you're like. Wow, the, the persistent data structures and immutability, really, if I had to choose between a language that wasn't a Lisp but had that versus was a Lisp but didn't, mm -hmm. I think I would probably reach for the one that was uh, not a Lisp just because it's such a big deal to have those. I, I, I could not agree more. I mean, it's, um, yeah, I actually think I would be unable to use another language. I could use any language as long as it provided uh, fast, persistent, immutable data structures. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think it's, they're just, I mean, they, just, they really do change everything. And, it, and it's been funny because I think React is this amazing example of like, even in a single threaded context, there's an incredible amount of value. And it wasn't obvious what that might be. And like, it's sort of serendipitous, right? React came out and it was like, wow, we like, here's, a, here's like a serious use case for persistent um, data structures in a single threaded context. So coming back to um, uh, the broader theme of ClojureScript, um, kind of let's just talk about the let's just talk about ClojureScript broadly. I mean, you're you're right in the middle of it. You're you're helping to move it forward. Where do you, from your perspective, kind of where is it at, and where would you like to see it go, and what what are you pushing to have happen to it? There are a few things. Uh, you know, some things. I mean, a lot, there's a lot of like I would say there's lots of immediate things that I would like to see improved. I mean, um, it would be nice for Compile times are actually pretty good, and we worked on that. Um, but it would be nice for startup time to be significantly better. I would love to see somebody focus on improving startup time of the ClojureScript compiler. 
Um, there are a few things that, that we could experiment with to make that work. Also, I think that we should change. Um, right now, I, like we basically like compile an entire source tree of files, and this is actually sort of inefficient. I would like ClojureScript to sort of work similarly to Clojure in that you sort of declare a, a main entry point. And this would actually eliminate a lot of redundant analysis and also speed up compile times. It would be nice, you know, like to me, like source maps have really changed the way I use ClojureScript. I think a lot like it's basically night and day. ClojureScript, I mean, debugging ClojureScript, I, I almost never look at the generated source anymore. If there's a bug, I just, you know, use source maps and it's great. I can find bugs uh, relatively quickly. But it's not perfect, especially in simple and advanced compilation. I mean, it's amazing that it works at all. Most compiled <laughs> JavaScript languages don't support source maps uh, through advanced or simple optimizations. But it would be interesting to investigate how can we improve that story, especially advanced, because it's still the case that understanding what goes wrong in advanced compilation is a bit tricky. Uh, so I'd like to improve that story. And then there's bigger things. I mean, something that I would love to see and that we've worked on sort of maybe it might, in a, might appear to be an oblique way is um, self-hosting. And self-hosting isn't about... Um, it's not about sending the ClojureScript compiler to the browser. I mean, this is something that people want. I, I think it's ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's too much code. But the, what would be cool is for things like Lighttable and uh, for things um, like Node.js where you just, you know, or, or really to solve the scripting problem, right, uh, where you would have a version of the Clojure ClojureScript compiler that boots very quickly, that can, you know, compile its own code, and, and, and for those contexts where the JVM isn't, isn't providing any particular amount of value, to basically be able to sort of leverage uh, the power of the ClojureScript compiler without the JVM. Uh, and this is sort of a long-term goal, and there's lots of problems to solve. But it would be exciting to see people work on the pieces that need solving, and then as a community figure out the bigger, sort of the bigger sort of conceptual roadblocks. I mean, there's lots of basic things to sort out that I think we should go ahead and start now. And then um, we can, you know, once we're there, we can be like, now what? Like, you know, do we, do we replicate, you know, closurejava.io and do we now have closure.node.io? Um, things like that. So if um, someone is out there and going, oh, that sounds like a great idea. How, how can I get started? What would you, what would you, how would you direct them to, to get involved? So, so the biggest thing is that, uh, 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 so two things. So I'm not sure if everybody's familiar with uh, his handle is Bronsa, but I think it's Niccolo Memeto. Um, he works on the Tools Analyzer, and he also works on um, Tools Reader, which is pretty amazing. Uh, and so he's been doing an incredible amount of work um, building uh, tools that sort of replicate, but in Clojure, uh, what the Clojure Java Reader and the Clojure Java Compiler do. So he basically has these pure Clojure implementations. And so I would love to see people basically port um, or basically in the same repo, Tools Reader should basically have, have a uh, totally native version of the ClojureScript Reader that's as, at least nearly as fast as the um, Tools Reader for, for Clojure on the JVM. That's, that's really like, if we, get, if we can get that, um, that's a huge step forward. After that, honestly, it's mostly boring details. It's like, uh, we need to have the macro system in ClojureScript and we need to make multi-methods a bit faster. After that, then it's more like, you know, what does, you know, what, what, you know, what does the Clojure core team think about? Like, how do we actually allow in a sensible way to abstract out 
IO and things like that, such that maintaining a, a self-hosting version of the Clojure compiler is not like a huge pain. Mm-hmm. So again, the, the goal here isn't that Clojure script be bootstrapped. The goal is that if somebody wants to produce a bootstrap version of the compiler, that it's a possibility. They can do that if they need it. Okay. And if somebody's like, yes, I am going to do that, would you suggest that they jump on the Clojure dev mailing list and say so, or reach out to you, or how how should somebody go about that? Oh, I mean, you know, people have asked about this before. I mean, Clojure dev is definitely a good place to talk about it. Definitely, you know, I'm I'm very active on IRC. Uh, Clojure script mailing list is also a great place. Yeah, I mean... Nicola's on IRC a lot as well. He's very active. So I would just say, like, you know, ask some questions on the man list and get involved on IRC and, you know, we can hash it out. Um, I actually don't think these, you know, it's a lot of this stuff is like the work is mostly like the work has been done for you. It's already been written in closure, right? It's really about porting. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you're saying it's something that, you know, people might be sitting there going, oh, man, the closure compiler, I'm just learning how map and reduce works. And, but you think that well, there's a lot of people out there that could jump in that might not think they could otherwise. Uh, I mean, I think most experienced Clojure script, you know, if you've had some experience with Clojure script, could probably um, work on these projects. Cool. Well, again, okay. again, because it's, you know, it's not, you're, you don't need to look at the, you don't need to look at the Clojure compiler. Like you get to look at Clojure code and translate it to Clojure script. Right, right. Which I think makes it a lot easier. Awesome. <laughs> well, cool. So, um, wow, let's jump in the Wayback Machine then for a minute and, um, and, and talk a bit about uh, CoreLogic, um, which was the, kind of the way I became aware of you for the first time. Um, it remains a very interesting uh, bit of technology that I personally have not had an opportunity to use um, in production, although I, I always kind of keep it in my mind for any, any time I, um, you know, looking around for problems that I could uh, successfully apply it to. Now, clearly, you're very busy. You have a lot of super interesting things going on. Are you still doing anything with CoreLogic, or in, involved, or aware, or you know, any sense of where it's at or where it's going? So CoreLogic is definitely like you know that's probably my most experimental library <laughs> by far. <laughs> um, you know, the other things I work on, I think people are actually being used quite a bit. Uh, CoreLogic is is actually being. I recently fixed something for Will Bird. Um, Will is doing some pretty interesting work on. He works with Matt Mike, this researcher, and they have this this sort of like PL static analysis group at University of Utah. And Will's doing some pretty interesting work doing with abstract interpretation. Uh, and he needed me to fix some things, so I recently uh, fixed some stuff. There are actually some really big projects. I mean, I would like to clean up CoreLogic when I you know when I have some free time. But there's also I do have some ideas now about how to make CoreLogic more friendly for uh, closure data structures. CoreLogic to this day is still, I think, far too list-centric. And this is just sort of falls out of the fact that Minikanron was extremely list-centric. And it makes sort of dealing uh, with it a little bit, I think, uh, makes it a little bit less fun than it could be. Uh, So one thing that I've been playing around with, and I hope to have some time to really do and really flesh out, is basically write, uh, there's this really cool constraint system in place. And the constraint system actually lets us do things that I didn't understand how to do before. So basically things like I have a data structure and I want to reverse the associ operation or I want to reverse conj or I want to reverse dissoc, right? So there's all these standard library operations where you might want to uh, infer something. You want to go backwards. And it was pretty, I think, not clear to me how this could be done, but it's now pretty clear. And I think a lot of the, the cool things that I've been showing over lists could actually be done over 
sets and hash maps and vectors. And I think it would be, I think it would make a lot more sense because you can net, you can basically stick to a more closure like API where right now I think it, uh, core logic kind of really shows its scheme and prologue roots, which is again, very list centric. Yeah. I felt some of that friction when I was going through and, um, you know, working my way through, um, the little, little, oh my gosh, which one is it? Little schemer, right? Uh, no, the reason schemer, of course, um, doing it in core logic. And I, so I, I did feel some of that friction. I mean, the library is cool, but you're, you're right. I think there's a, a fair amount of, um, listiness, if you will, <laughs> yeah. to think, go ahead. No, no, I just, I think, I think closure programmers don't think of lists as the, as the go-to. Yeah. Well, I mean, with, I think good reason and they're a pretty yes. limited data structure for a lot of the things we want to express. The, the thing I wanted to ask you was what was, so, so I'm not, I'm not a PhD, right? I'm not an academic. I don't know what your academic background was, but I know if I were a regular programmer and people from the research Sorry, not to equate me as a programmer with you, but I have a lot of respect for your work. But if I if I were suddenly taken interest in by the academic community, um, in in the way that your work has been, I would just be blown away. Like, has that been a weird thing for you at all to have people, you know, professors say, "Oh, I like your work." Uh, I I mean, you know, I I think that it's not quite as strange as it as, as it seems because often what happens in research is people have these really great ideas, but they have really not so great implementations. And this isn't to say that CoreLogic is like the best implementation of MiniCamera or anything, but there's a lot of, I think, for me, when I looked at MiniCamera, it was really like, I wonder if this could be faster in Clojure. I wonder if it could be better. Um, maybe Clojure has the right sort of data structures to make this really like shine. So, so I think researchers are, are the type of people that don't have the time or the energy to write often like production quality implementations. And so I think, you know, if you get somebody who's like, I think this is a great idea, I'll write a better implementation of this, um, you're going to get a lot of interest, right? Because research want, researchers don't often get to see their ideas confirmed in production. And so I think a lot of the excitement was really like, oh, somebody implemented a decent version of Minion Cameron and actually some people are using it for very simple things. Granted, I actually think CoreLogic is really best suited for like I have a simple thing I want to solve. I, unification is useful here. Or I have a very simple relation that I want to write. Or I want to do some very simple inference. And I think CoreLogic has a lot of value when, when what you need it for is very simple. And, and that's extremely exciting, right, to people who really thought that this would be mostly of interest to academics, right, to, to see that your, your work is being used um, on real software projects is, I think, I think exciting. That means, you know, like as an open source developer, my source of excitement is when somebody uses my library. I think for an academic, it's like somebody actually cares about my theory, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, I agree. It's always, it's always a little surprise. I mean, I've had some, done a few little things in open source and it's always surprising me that anybody uses it at all, let alone when there's, you know, some modest reaction. So I, I think you're, you're probably spot on on that one. Well, David, you know, <laughs> we're kind of winding down here. I want to make sure that I, uh, I mean, as far as time, I, you know, I, I, I want to make sure that I, we, we hit everything that you might want to talk about. Is there anything, anything else that we haven't talked about yet that uh, you'd like to let our listeners know about? Hmm, I can't, I can't actually think of anything. Um, I saw you the posted the other day about a group that you are involved in that meets physically in, in Brooklyn. Is that something you would want to talk about? Right, right, right. So I've started doing this code salon thing. Um, so um, 
I have this sort of like, we have a studio in Brooklyn and it's sort of this loose assortment of programmers and artists. Um, and you know, it's, you know, like classic, like sort of like, let's share a studio. It's a bunch of creative people. And I decided that, you know, it would be awesome to have a small focused sort of like discussion group, like people who are involved in code. And so I think that's kind of like awesome, both like the idea here is to like sort of bring people who actually have some experience speaking and to basically charge a small fee, both to cover the space, but also to like get an audience that's sort of excited and serious about the speaker. Um, and I think this sort of creates an ideal situation where somebody can get really deep into something they're excited about and the audience can sort of like really be sort of responsive to the ideas. Um, but we, it's pretty cool. We have the, um, like we already have it lined up, um, uh, the inventor of, of Elm, the creator of Elm, which is a pretty neat language. He's presented at um, Strangeloop and basically it's like kind of like a Haskell-like language, but it has a very interesting implementation of functional reactive programming, FRP. And he's solved some some really interesting hard problems in that space, and it's gonna be it's gonna be cool. He's gonna be, I think his talk is titled "The Taxonomy of FRP." Uh, next month, I'm gonna be talking about Ohm and just sort of like doing functional UI programming, um, and sort of you know reiterating and sort of diving deeper into some of the things we talked about today. And then in April, we have this guy. Uh, a good friend of mine, Michael Bernstein, who has been, you know, been doing a lot of talks at, you know, about sort of distributed systems and, and uh, garbage collection. And I don't know what he's going to talk about yet, but I think it's going to be pretty cool. Awesome. But yeah, I'm really excited. About it. It's like, it's basically something I, that I, that I, that I want to happen in Brooklyn that wasn't happening, which is like, again, like a sort of small speaker series where you can really sort of, you know, dig into something. Yeah, it sounds super fun. I wish I were a lot closer to Brooklyn than I am. <laughs> Um, and we'll put links in the show notes for where people can find out more information about that and about everything else we've talked about it as usual. Cool. Oh, man. Wow. So anything else? Uh, I don't I think I think we I think we covered a lot of stuff. We did cover a lot of stuff because um, you have done a lot of things. And I'm, I know that you'll be doing even more interesting things in the future. And and we'd love to check back in with you because, uh, you know, the. At a bare minimum. Right. Closure script is yeah. a super important technology for us. But we're also and when I say we, I mean me and the and the people I know. That's not like an official position, but um, you know, uh, I I'm super interested in like where Closure Script is going and how it's evolving. And and but the other stuff you're doing is is fascinating to me too. So love to check back in with you on any of that. Yeah. So it is. So this is actually coming up. Closure West is happening. I'm speaking at Closure West. And so yeah. So if, if for people are, that are curious about the, I you know what's the big picture as well as the implementation details, I'm going to be digging into that. Uh, next month. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Awesome. Yeah. And yeah. tickets are available. <laughs> um, cool. Well, David, there is one more question I have to ask you uh, before we go, which is uh, the music that you'd like us to exit the show with. Right. So this is um, an, a really great psychedelic band. Um, but this is funny because uh, it's a version of their band when they were trying to make it big as a pop band. Um, and they had like a single... And they never really made it. And uh, it, later they became um, this band called Vermaces. And they put out a record called Space Hymns, which I really recommend listening to. It's an incredible record. One of my favorites. But this is a song when they were trying to make it big as a pop band. So it's fun. Okay. And the name of the song is? Uh, I think it's called Crazy Ones. 
All right, cool. Awesome. Well, people are hearing that now. David, thank you so much for coming on. Like I said, I feel like given the amount of interesting things you've done, um, you know, we should have had you on a long time ago um, and, and probably <laughs> several times since. Uh, but I'm glad we did finally manage to make it happen. And I'm, I'm absolutely looking forward to having you back on again um, and talking more about any of the innumerable interesting things you've done. Uh, you know, we try to keep the show to under an hour. Um, so, you know, I feel like you and many of the other guests are people we could talk to for three, four hours and we wouldn't run out of things to say. But uh, right. we'll have to just save it for another time. So thanks a ton for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Oh, it was our pleasure. And uh, we will thank everyone else for listening. This has been the Cognicast. You have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech, Inc., whom you can find on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. Our guest today was David Nolan on Twitter at Swanodet, S-W-A-N-N-O-D-E-T-T-E. The Cognicast is produced with help from Alex Miller, Alex War, Damian Mack, David Chalimsky, Jamie Kite, Justin Getlin, Lake Denman, Luke Vanderhart, Lynn Grogan, Mark Phillips, Michael Fogus, Ryan Neufeld, Sam Umbach, Sandy Ezel, and Stuart Sierra. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento, audio production by Russ Olson. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening. See you in every stop.